0: Um, If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of Job. It's in the Old Testament, right before the Psalms that are kind of in the middle. Uh, And we're going to be looking at uh, some parts of the book of Job this morning. While you're turning there, whether you have a Bible or whether you use a Bible app, that's fine too. But it's going to be helpful for you to get your eyes on God's Word this morning. While you're turning there, I want you to think back to the amazing classic movie, Finding Nemo. Okay, there's, it's amazing. Uh, It's a movie of wonderful bravery and love and there's this part in the movie, there's lots of good parts in the movie, right? Uh, But there's this one part where if you remember, Nemo's dad makes it to Australia and he comes up to the surface of the water and what does he see? He sees all these seagulls and what what are they doing? They're saying, mine, mine, mine. Everything else in the movie is endearing except for that. That's like the most annoying part of the movie. Uh, They don't have dibs over every single fish. That's what they're trying to do. Uh, This morning, unlike the seagulls in Finding Nemo, God, in the book of Job, in our passage this morning, declares that everything really is his. That everything is his. His. Uh, But this isn't annoying like seagulls, it's actually comforting to frail people like you and me. Let's find out why this morning. We are neck deep in our Faith Under Fire series as we've been going through the book of Job and we have made it all the way up to chapter forty. Remember, this is a story of, uh, of the man of Job who, this is a riches to rags story. He had everything and then he lost everything. And so for 30 some chapters, we've been reading about how these conversations with his friends uh, and why he's been suffering the way that he has. Last week, God stepped in and he said, let me give you some perspective, Job. And so God uh, has made one speech to Job already, and and Job's response in the beginning of chapter 40 was that he just said, I'm, I'm, I can't, I can't add anything to this. God, you are right. And so he, he literally puts his hand over his mouth. And so then now for chapters 40, 41, and the beginning of 42, we see God's second conversation with Job, or really God's second speech. And this morning, uh, we are going to see how God responds to Job and why that matters to us. Now, we have been working on our verse of the series, Job 19.25, that aids us in our, memoriz- in, in our understanding of the book of Job as we've memorized that verse. So it's, we have it for this week and next week, and then we finish the series. So hopefully you guys are able to, to learn it. Let's say it right now this morning, Job 19.25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. Let's pray for our time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that indeed Your Spirit would be at work in our hearts this morning as we examine Your justice and Your faithfulness and Your sovereignty over everything. Father, would You use Your Word this morning to transform our hearts that we would trust and find comfort in all that you reign over. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it's hard to summarize kind of two and a half chapters and ten words or less, but we're going to do it again this morning, so that if there is anything that we want you to walk away with this morning, if, if there's anything you get tired of during the service and you, and you zone out, this is what we want to make sure that you walk away with this morning. Here's what I think the point is of chapter 40, 41, and the beginning of, of 42 of, of Job is about. Christian, take comfort that God rules over the greatest of terrors and the greatest of evils. We can take comfort this morning because God rules over the greatest of terrors and evil. And that's really what God is going to highlight this morning. So we're going to look at this kind of in three ways. We're going to look at chapter 40, God's beast. We're going to look at chapter 41, God's leash. And then we're going to look at Job's response, God's, uh, or Job's awe in chapter 42. So let's look at Job chapter 40 together, God's beast. Okay, so we just finished uh, a quick first round and Job is ready to tap out but God's not finished with him, okay? God's goal isn't to TKO Job in the first round, but his goal is to actually help Job. And so for a a second time, God tells Job to prepare for battle, to dress like a man, because God is ready for round two. But what's interesting is that round two isn't just a repeat of round one. It's actually entirely different. Uh, What God says is different and Job's response is different. God's second speech uh, even receives different response from Job. And so while the first speech focused on how God controls the world and and how God's wisdom controls the world, the second speech is kind of highlighting God's justice of the world. Last week, Job responded to God's Uh, his first speech in humbleness and silence, this morning we're going to see Job affirming some really significant deep truths about God that Job is finally experiencing. So the accusation that Job had made about God in in verse 8 of chapter 40 that we see is that God had been unjust, that God had been wrong in what has happened in Job's life. And so in verse 8, God then says, no, Job, uh, you are not only failing to understand my wise ways, but you are actually trying to put me on trial and try to make yourself look right. And while we have commended Job this entire summer, we've commended Job for his innocence and his trusting of the Lord, uh, we quickly see that Job went too far in, in making everyone, including God, wrong but himself Innocent. And I think that's easy for us to do as well. It's easy for us to think that we are so correct that it actually becomes prideful. So, one of the questions we should be asking this morning is how can we be innocent but not prideful? Job was so certain of his position on the matter that he didn't need to listen to anyone else. Uh, They would just simply be wrong. We do it the same thing with our relationships with people. Too often, we assume that we already know the position of of this topic or that topic of someone and so therefore our hearts and minds are already made up and our ears are turned off before we even hear the other person speak. I think that's actually to our shame. In those moments, we are assuming we know that person without honestly listening to them. But remember, Christians are called to be quick to listen, slow to speak, not quick to assume, not quick to be deaf to the words of our fellow brothers and sisters. And and here's why I think it matters, because if we aren't quick to listen to the very people of God, our own family, our own brothers and sisters, then chances are we also pick and choose what we want to hear from God. And then we become wrong like Job was here see when we approach God's word every single time whether whether we have read the passage a million times or how familiar we are with it we need to approach every passage with humbleness asking that God and his spirit would work in our hearts every time we read his word So if you were certain about a particular piece of scripture, but in your reading, you realized you were actually wrong, would you change it? I did this morning, actually. We'll get to that. Yeah. If not, might that even reveal a heart that is unwilling to listen even to the very words of God? You know, I've been really encouraged, actually, um... If you remember, uh, Peter Gosnell also preached one of the sermons out of Job, and it was a fantastic sermon. And what you all didn't get the privilege of knowing is that Peter and I had been meeting for hours and hours and talking about the book of Job and he told me after his sermon he said you know what after working through all of this I've actually changed some of my positions on the book of Job it was really encouraging this is a man who's a biblical scholar who's one of our own who teaches at Muskingum University and yet ha- he's been teaching there for what 18 years and yet he still said you know what from studying God's word this summer it even made me change some things now that was so encouraging to hear actually See, Job got to a point that he was so certain he was right that everyone else was wrong, even God. That's when he became wrong. People who follow the rules can easily become self-righteous. Job is like that on steroids here. And so in life, we need to leave room for the unknown that only God knows what we cannot know. And that is how we remain humble. We need to leave room for the unknown that only God knows what we cannot know. And so God's response to Job in verses 10 to 14 of chapter 40 is, well, if you think you can do better, Job, then go ahead and do it. Uh, And so he references God's arm and his thundering voice as reminders that those are God's powerful actions of God who rescues his people and punishes his enemies. And so essentially God says, okay, Job, here's my royal robe. Here's my crown. Here's my throne. Here's all of my majesty and dignity. Uh, uh, Obviously, you know how to do this better, Job. Go ahead. Why don't you put them on, Job? You're in charge now. Maybe you guys remember the movie Bruce Almighty, where Jim Carrey is a TV reporter who complains about God one too many times. And so then God actually responds by giving him the opportunity to run things for himself. You guys remember how poorly that went and so god says essentially in verse 14 job if you can do these things then i would recognize that job you don't need my arm to save you with your own mighty powerful right hand but the reality is that job's power doesn't even make it onto the charts compared to god's power and justice and so god says okay here's exhibit a in verses 15 to 24 The behemoth, okay? Uh, In case you are wondering, I don't think it's a dinosaur. Uh, I also don't think it's a hippo. We'll we'll get to that later. Uh, But let's look at how it's described. The description of the behemoth is like a super beast. His origins are from God. He's a creature made by God. He eats grass like an ox. Um, He's crazy strong. He has muscles that have no match. He's the first of God's works in the sense that he's the top boss. No one messes with him, okay? So if you remember back to your Super Mario 3 days, each level had its own boss, but the mega supercopa is like the ultimate boss, right? You can't defeat him before you're defeating the other ones. And so the behemoth is like the top boss. No one messes with him. Uh, the description gives a suggestion that he's a land creature, uh, but he isn't afraid of dangerous waters. Think of some animal that is able to be so big that when the rushing waters would rush away everything else, it just stands there like a big tree. That's what verse 23 is about. Uh, It's pretty bizarre, actually, that in verse 19 of chapter 40, the one who made the behemoth and no one else is able to approach him with a sword. The behemoth's maker is the only one that has the power and authority to come near it with his sword, uh, which is expressing his uh, uh, dominion over it, the ability to subdue it, to keep it in its place, and even to kill it. Uh, This is going to make better sense here in a little bit, but picture Jesus in Revelation 19. Who's that warrior riding on the white horse returning to, 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 to bring judgment? And, and the picture of, of Jesus describes as he has this wicked tattoo on his thigh, and he has this sword that's coming out of his mouth, ready to destroy the beast and the false prophet. And it describes this, this sharp sword that's coming out of his mouth. So in verse 24, the behemoth cannot be captured by normal hunting techniques. God and God alone is able to overpower this master, this monster. No one else can. And so the picture in Job chapter 40 is a picture of a powerful, hungry superbeast, untamable by humans, who is yet made by God and can be tamed and therefore defeated by God. We have seen some animals like this. If you remember back to 2007, where this uh, crew uh, of this New New Zealand fishing boat were off the waters of Antarctica, and they, were, uh, they caught, do you guys remember this? They caught this squid that was 39 feet long and over 1,000 pounds, and they described its eyeballs as being the size of dinner plates. Okay, imagine swimming in those waters and coming face-to-face to that. You know what I'm saying? Uh... That's insane. It's terrifying. So the question comes to us, how are we to respond to terrifying and supernatural evil in our world? How do we respond to unexpected diagnoses of terminal diseases for ourselves or for loved ones? How are we to think when violent crimes rob people of physical health or give them trauma where that leaves people paralyzed? Well, I think we begin by recognizing that even the greatest of terrors are only creatures that can be tamed and defeated by God. The greatest of fears and anxieties that we could experience in life are always within God's control. The same God who also says to us, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. We can take comfort that God rules over the greatest of terrors and evils. Well, let's look at Job chapter 41, God's leash this morning. So the behemoth is not the only terror that God describes. Uh, Next comes the Leviathan. And just for the record, I don't think it's a dinosaur, and I don't think it's a dragon, and I also don't think it's a crocodile, okay, I know the Cambridge Bible commentary on the book of Job translates the word Leviathan as a whale, uh, but I don't think that's actually the description that's given here. Uh, I'll get to what I think it is in a moment, but but think about how it's described here in chapter 41. The description of this Leviathan is is a picture of this terrifying creature, and and then at the end of it, we kind of get no explanation at the end of, of chapter 41. And so I think we're meant to imagine and feel and hear the creature in all of its terror. I mean, its strength is beyond what humans can muster. There there are no known techniques for capturing a a huge animal. They were completely ineffective against a monster of Leviathan's proportions. So God says there's no hook, there's no rope, there's no harpoon that can, can catch him. He's invincible. God is essentially saying, Anyone that thinks that they can catch a whale with a $10 fishing pole from Walmart better think again. If you guys think back to the, the movie, The Jurassic World, the first Jurassic World, and they create that dinosaur, right, the, the half uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex and the half Velociraptor that can also turn invisible whenever it's hunting you, you know, that terror thing. Uh, remember at the end of the movie where it, it's like going and it's right by the waters, you guys remember what happens? And it's like about to, so spoiler alert, it's been out for like 10 years. You're fine. So, uh, well, you, well now you will. So, so this huge dinosaur is going and they're about to get eaten. And all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, out of the water comes this even more terrifying dinosaur. And it dwarfs this other Tyrannosaurus rex velociraptor and eats it like a gummy worm. Okay? It just, it just eats it up. It dwarfs this crazy dinosaur coming out of the water think of that when you think of the Leviathan, okay? That's all right. So the idea of someone being able to come and tame the Leviathan, it's hilarious to God. That's what verses five through nine of chapter 41 are about. God says, will you play with him as with a small bird? or, Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? You can hear God laughing when he says this. Will, will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can, can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Uh, lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You won't do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. So God says, oh, silly Job. No human being under heaven can expect to attack the Leviathan and survive. And so God continues in verses 10 and 11. He says, if you think it'd be scary to stand in the Leviathan's presence, just consider what it'd be like to stand in my presence. God says to Job, no one, not even the Leviathan, has rights over God. That's what 10 and 11 say of chapter 41. He says, No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? God says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is saying that anything and everything under the whole heavens is his. Whatever the Leviathan and the behemoth is, they belong to God. So think of the Leviathan and tremble and then think what it means for God to be the sovereign, almighty creator over the Leviathan and over even us. Just to make certain that Job and we get the point, God continues to describe the Leviathan in the rest of chapter 41. In verse 14, it says, around his teeth, is terror. In verses 19 of 20, it says, out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. Or look at verses 26 and 27. Though the sword reaches him, it does not prevail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. Or look at verses 33 and 34. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. And I think that's actually a key component to how we understand what these are actually. And so we're left without conclusion in Job 41 and so we should go back to what God says in verses 10 and 11. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Therefore, who can stand against God? Who has first given to God that he should repay us? Whatever is under the whole heavens is God's. And so even this terrifying creature is a creature that God controls. It's enough for Job to respond and and we need to understand Job's response for our own response to God today. We can take comfort that God rules over the greatest of terrors and evils. Let's look at Job 42, Job's awe. In fact, I'm going to read that for us beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had only heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, the first speech last week of God's left Job humble and silent. But this second speech ends with Job affirming some important truths about God that we should also embrace. Job Job says three kind of key things here that we should grab a hold of. In verse 2, Job acknowledges that God's power and purposes are limitless, far beyond anything that Job could even imagine. Job believed that God was almighty. He had already said so in the book of Job, uh, but now Job knows this truth in a much deeper and realistic way. And here's why. Suffering often gives us depth of things that we already know intellectually but haven't yet experienced, right? Job believed that God was almighty, but it was in Job's suffering and his hearing from God that Job realizes how much deeper God's almightiness really was, far deeper than he imagined before. And so one part of suffering and trials is that we experience God in ways that we didn't even know we didn't know, And so one goal in suffering is that it would refine us, that it would purify us, and that it would make us more hopeful for the day when our faith becomes sight. One reason that, one of the reasons why we go through suffering is often so that we would come to the end of ourselves so that we would have to rely on God in a bigger way than we ever have before. So brothers and sisters, we have not come to know all that we ought to of God. Sometimes we must experience difficult circumstances to go deeper, which is actually a loving act of God. So as we walk with one another in suffering, let us be quick to remind one another of God's love for us in the midst of it. Let us be quick to remind each other of God's grace that meets every trial that we experience. That God who is sovereign over every single day gives us what he says is best, whether that is pain or pleasure. And we are called to trust in his just and sovereign control. In fact, we are to find comfort in God. In verse three, Job says that he spoke of things that he did not know, that there were things too wonderful for Job, referring to God's power and things that only God could understand, referring to God's wisdom, showing that God is not unjust at all, but in fact is perfectly just. King David said something similar in our call to worship this morning of Psalm 131. He said, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, The third thing that we see Job doing in verses four and five is that he quotes what God had said earlier and then in one of the most famous verses of this entire book, Job says that he had heard of the things of God but now he sees them much more clear than he ever had before. And so Job's response to seeing all that God is in control over, in seeing all that he has made and governs Job's response in verse 6 is to repent. Job turned from his words and repented for his sin, which is pretty extraordinary considering all the times his friends told him to repent and he didn't do it and he refused to do so. Job's response in doubting God when he recognized that he was sinning, he recognized that he needed to change, His response was that he repented. Brothers and sisters, it is good to recognize when we are doubting God, but that should not stop there. It should not stop at our recognition. When we doubt God, when we say things about God that aren't true, when we act in ways that make God in the wrong, well, then we are called to also repent. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, right, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The call on the Christian life is not a one-time repentance, but a lifetime of repentance. Our call as people who've been created in God's image, created in God's earth and for God's pleasure is to know God and to not be separated from him. But we became separated from him through our willful rebellion against him. The Bible calls that sin and we've been separated from God and we will one day face judgment for our sin against God. And so God calls us to turn from our prideful ways that say, God, we don't need you God calls us to turn to him in repentance and then trust, trust that God has made a way for us, which he has through Jesus. Jesus came down to earth to live a perfect life and to die the death that we have deserved for our rebellion against God. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the condemnation that we deserved. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead And God says, trust in Jesus, in his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection, and turn from your sin, and then you'll be reconciled to me once more. And so the call in the Christian life is not a one-time repentance, but a lifetime of repentance. Repentance isn't an embarrassing act. It's just a continual recognition that God is God, and we are not, and we need God to refine us that we need God to rescue us from our sin and from our doubting. Repentance isn't what super Christians do. It's what real Christians do. And so when we doubt God and when we speak and act wrongly because of doubting God, we are called to repent and then be transformed by God's grace. That's why we were singing the song earlier, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance because of what God does in our lives when we turn from our sin and turn back to him. So Job repenting is important at this point in the story because at this point, if you remember the context, Job is sitting on a giant trash pile outside of the city and sitting in ashes. Okay, Job has not yet been restored. We know that he does. We know that we're gonna read about that next week. But at this point when Job repents, nothing has gotten better about his life. And yet he recognizes his need to repent regardless of what happens in his immediate circumstances. This also helps us to realize that when we feel like we are suffering and going through trials in in our lives and we think, okay, where can we use the Bible as prayers for us and as models for us for when we're suffering? Job isn't it, okay? The Psalms are way better for that. But Job had to repent from what he did, from what he said, which means we don't want to model after that. You know what I'm saying? So Job is helping us understand that if we are going through trials and suffering, we need to trust God, not accuse God. Job tried to call on God to give an account for Job's suffering. And so God needed to correct Job in that. And so God's speech shows his justice over the world, but, but not how we might initially think. Uh, it has to do back with the behemoth and the Leviathan. Uh, when I was reading this, actually, a couple of weeks ago with our staff, uh, they were asking me, Brian, what do you think this is? And I was like, it might be a dragon. It might be something else. I'm not sure. I don't think it's a dinosaur. Uh, and, and, and here's what I've come to, to be helped with by uh, helpful commentators like Christopher Ashe on the book of Job, um, other commentators are saying this too, that, that, that I think it's something way bigger going on here uh, because it's really anticlimactic for Job's inability to catch a hippo or a crocodile to describe his inability to, to give cosmic justice like God describes. I think there's major difficulties in thinking that these creatures are just natural hippos or crocodiles so so think about the Leviathan that uh, is described as a fire-breathing monster and an ocean-dwelling creature, well, neither of those things are true about a crocodile. And so I don't think the descriptions fit very closely. That's why I don't think it's a whale. Um, but if the behemoth and the Leviathan are symbols of something that is really much more terrifying than that we, we, might, we might be onto something. So I think actually the behemoth and the Leviathan are symbols of both death and Satan, and then that changes everything. Job isn't the only place that, that mentions the, the Leviathan. Psalm 74 describes God crushing the heads of the Leviathan. Uh, Psalm 104 describes it as a sea monster. But what we see continuously in the book of Revelation is that the imagery of beasts and dragons and serpents and sea monsters apply explicitly to Satan. So think of Revelation twelve nine, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Or think of Revelation 20. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So the Leviathan is a strange, terrifying sea monster, fire-breathing dragon, who conveys to us terror and evil in a way that saying, Satan is really bad. Doesn't come across like it does if if he's imaged as a terrifying sea monster. And so recognizing him as this symbolic force of terror and evil uh, helps us understand the very real enemy that Satan is. And so I think that these are descriptions of of the worst imagination of an animal we can think of, but describes a very real enemy that drives us to fear. And so in this way, the power of Satan is much more real to us when we think about it this way. And so Satan, also one of the, the problems that, that uh, modern scholars have with the book of Job is they say, well, J- uh, Satan has such an uh, important role in the beginning of the book, but then he just kind of disappears. What, what's with that? This must not be an actual book of the Bible. Well, he doesn't disappear if he actually comes out in full force at the end of Job in all of his terror. And so the behemoth, I think, is a picture of the figure of death. The Leviathan is, a, is the biblical imagery of the archenemy of God, described as the prince of the power of evil, the God of this world, the one who holds the power over death, Satan. Right. In fact, verse 34 of chapter 41 of Job, that's kind of key in this. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. And so the point of Job 41 is to make us tremble at the terrifying power of the prince of evil. And if we thought that evil was bad, when we come face to face with the Leviathan, we realize it's infinitely more than what we realized. And we also recognize that we can't come to a conclusion with the problem of the fact that these evils exist. And we know that we can't. But God says, I can. That's the point. These monsters of evil are creatures. Created things. Chapter 41 verse 5 says, that God has made, and God can tame him. And in fact, even the Leviathan is on God's leash, even though he's not on our leashes. And so the behemoth and the Leviathan are proof that God can keep evil on his leash. That's what we want to walk away with this morning. Evil is on God's leash, even if it cannot be on ours. I remember walking my dog as a, as a young boy at a Springer Spaniel and she was feisty and she saw something and she just took off down the road and I'm trying to hold on to dear life and eventually my grip loses the leash and she just pulls away from me. I can't catch up to her. My family's got to go drive around the neighborhood looking for, looking for my dog that ran away. Uh, she was way beyond my control, right? That's not the case with God. When we suffer, our fears are often like Job's, that the suffering is unrestrained or that the attacks will go on forever or that this suffering has evil, unlimited access on our lives. See, Job was afraid that his suffering, that, that in his suffering, there was no sovereign God who had evil on his leash. But do you remember the first chapters of Job? Chapters one and two, when, when God, and Job are ha- or God and Satan are having that conversation and Satan is saying, yeah, Job's worthless. He'll deny you in a second. And God is the one who's giving Satan permission to do those things. But he also says, this is where you stop. This is where you go no further, Satan. And so the reality is that Satan obeys God to the letter. Satan, the Leviathan, is a horrible monster, but he cannot go one millimeter beyond the leash that God keeps him on. Satan, the Leviathan, is God's Satan, God's pet, if you even want to say it that way. And so as we suffer, we have absolute confidence to trust in our sovereign God, knowing that while the suffering is terrible, it cannot and it will never go beyond God's leash. God has always had evil on his leash. And when Job realizes that, he's filled with awe. That's why verse two of 42 is so important when Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Well, we know from the New Testament, we learn the cost for God to finalize his victory over the Leviathan. Right? The reason that Jesus became human was so that through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, And so, God can do all things, and nothing that He has planned can be thwarted. Is the comfort for our souls when we suffer and when we are full of fear. Because God controls evil and at times uses it even for His good purposes. Think of the most evil deed in human history when the moment when the Leviathan and the behemoth thought that they had won, they thought they had, were victorious, when it was actually that moment designed by God before the foundation of the world when the behemoth and the Leviathan were defeated as Christ died on the cross and was raised on the third day. It wasn't what looked like failure was actually success. What looked like torture was actually failure. God's love. What looked like defeat was actually God's victory. And so in even the greatest evil deed in human history, the death of Jesus was not a victory for the Leviathan. It was actually a victory for God who says, I've always had you on my leash. What comfort we have in God's sovereign plans. What comfort we have that God rules over the greatest of terrors and the greatest of evil. See, God is no seagull in finding Nemo. No, God is the one who reigns and rules over even the most terrifying things so that we can find rest so that we can find comfort in God, so that we can trust him in our trials, so that we don't end up like Job, who accuses God of doing wrong. Instead, we say where Job ends up, which we sing loud and proud, God, you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted, so I can trust in you, even when I don't understand, even when it feels like it's killing me, even when I don't even understand how this could at all be okay, we can take comfort that God rules over the greatest evils and terrors and has those things on his leash. Praise God for that. Because we don't have those things on our leash, but God does. Let's pray. As we go this morning, hear our benediction from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Enjoy the rest of your Lord's Day and we'll be praying for you this week and we look forward to seeing you next week.